It's not my party. Crying's not allowed. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday Sermon of October 4th, 2020 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. The Torah commands the people of Israel to celebrate the feasts of the Lord. Tabernacles, like the other two pilgrim feasts, is to be celebrated in holiness, which means no work, going to the temple, and bringing gifts to the Lord. However, Rev. David Pelegi reminds us, at tabernacles, God also commands His people to be joyful. Do we find it difficult to be joyful? Are we afraid of joy, or perhaps even feel that God owes us more than we have? Gratitude is not an abstract feeling, but an act of the will. And Hebrews 13 helps illustrate how we can put gratitude into practice. Before we continue, the Christ Church Mercy Fund has launched a new project, the Ethiopian Community Economic Relief Initiative, or ESERI. Recent studies show that the Ethiopian community is the most impoverished sector of Israeli society. They face racial and religious discrimination, they struggle to learn the language, and understandably find it difficult to integrate into Israeli society. The Aseri Project is designed to provide immediate help by providing unemployed families with food and more. We've already provided 40 families with the base ingredients for 30 meals. In the future, we'll also arrange for Hebrew lessons, computer training, and help finding employment. To learn more and to partner with us, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org and click on the Mercy Fund tab. Toda. Now, on to the lectionary readings. Lesson tonight is the instruction given to Israel through Moses for the celebration of this feast. Taken from Leviticus chapter 23, beginning at the 33rd verse. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and a drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides your vows, and besides all your freewill offerings which you give to the Lord. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, You shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days, and on the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, willows from the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days, 
all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be with covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us. For we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. But I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the word of the Lord. Once again, we come to you and we pray that uh, you will send your Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus come into our midst, to be in this service, and to be our teacher. We pray that as we look at scripture, you will indeed uh, encourage us, you will challenge us, and Lord, you will give us many reasons to rejoice in you this evening. We do ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I think everybody, at least here and around the world, we are aware that uh, we are in celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the 
uh, third major pilgrimage feast of the Jewish liturg liturgical year. And unlike Passover and Shavuot, we don't exactly have you know, what we would sometimes think of as a, a New Testament fulfillment of uh, this holiday. Of course, uh, many people see uh, echoes of the Feast of Tabernacles in the book of Revelation, but we won't uh, delve into that now. What I think is important, uh, even though most of us uh, who are listening to this are not Jewish and will not be uh, celebrating uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or celebrating during uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, what I do think is important is that there's a lot to learn from these uh, Jewish holidays and these feasts. And the lessons they have to teach us are uh, things that uh, are certainly ongoing, things that are va very valuable uh, to all believers and all disciples of Jesus. And I think the place to start really is with the concept of holiness. And more than once we've said uh, from this pulpit, if you can call this antique Syrian plant stand a pulpit, more than once we've mentioned that God not only sanctifies people and sanctifies places and sanctifies objects, but God sanctifies time. And not only is the Sabbath holy, but of course, God uh, has his uh, feasts, uh, which are also holy. And they're sanctified, and Israel is to respond uh, by uh, celebrating or keeping uh, these festivals also uh, in a holy way. And these festivals, of course, are to be uh, joyful. Now, the minute we think of a party, um, the minute we think of... Uh, celebrations, it's very, very easy to uh, think of uh, or to, to be reminded of uh, how many celebrations or many parties actually go in the world. They are an opportunity or an excuse uh, for some wild behavior, uh, for drunkenness, for licentiousness, and uh, all kinds of things uh, go on that um, are uh, certainly unsavory. You only have to think of carnival or Mardi Gras or the way that uh, people uh, celebrate uh, uh, at least the secular world in many, many places in the world. And I think that where we need to just remind, what we need to remind folks is that God tells Israel I want you to celebrate. I understand the human need to celebrate because in this festival is also a harvest festival. And there's been anxiety all year, all throughout the agricultural year. Will there be enough to eat? Will there be uh, a good harvest? Will I, be, will I be able to feed my family and sell something in order to pay my expenses? So there's anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. The harvest comes in, and when it does, God is commanding us to rejoice. So there is a human need to rejoice. 
There's a human need to celebrate. But uh, the Lord makes it clear when he gives his instructions to Israel, you are not um, to celebrate. You're not to celebrate like the nations. And in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, God uh, talks um, about the, uh, the nations that uh, were in uh, the land of Israel and the way that they worshiped gods, uh, worshiped uh, false gods. He says uh, in verse four, I think it is, I can't very well read. It says, you must not worship the Lord your God their way. So God is saying, celebrate, yes, but celebration, rejoicing has to be done uh, in a holy manner, not in a boring manner, but certainly in a holy manner. And the passage that we read from Leviticus gives us some clues and lets us know why uh, this is different, why, this, why uh, there's a certain holiness or, or what makes these festivals holy. And uh, if we begin looking at um, the, passage that we, the passage that we read in, uh, was it chapter 24, um, it begins by telling us, yes, that the, the, the festival are to be, um, sorry, it's not 24, it is 23. It says the feast of chapter 23. The Lord says to Moses, say to the Israelites, first and foremost, do no regular work, right? Put work aside during this eight-day festival. Do not uh, tend to your daily business. Don't get caught up in uh, trying to uh, catch up with your emails. Yes, but what makes this holy, what makes it different, what separates this um, and separates this period, that it is to be <clears throat> a time of rejoicing. We are to rejoice, especially as we'll see, with the community and with the family. In addition to uh, the people of Israel rejoicing, God in other places commands that when uh, it comes to these holidays, don't make your bond servants work. Don't make your slaves work. Uh, everybody is to rejoice. And so you're not to take advantage of people by saying, yes, I'm going to uh, have a nice uh, time of festivity, but yeah, but my domestic staff or my hired hands on the farm, they'll actually have to work. The Lord says, stop, stop. And so this is probably, the, you might say, our first signpost of what um, makes it holy. I think the other thing to point out, um, I'm going to skip a little bit to the end of the passage. And here we have a, uh, you might say, an explanation. It says, all native born Israelites are to live in booths. Yes, this is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, in which the people of Israel were commanded to. To, to live in booths uh, for the seven days, so that your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths and brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. 
Now this might seem a little bit strange, but basically God is saying, I want you to know, not even just to remember, but to know in a very deep, intrinsic way what I've done for you so that you don't forget and that you don't take me uh, for granted or that or you somehow, it's, it might be very easy for the people of Israel to say, the Exodus, it happened 3,000 years ago. It really has nothing to do with me. It's not relevant or pertinent for my generation. And the Lord says, I want you to live in booths so that you will know, so that people will come, yes, to a knowledge of what God has done. Now, this might seem a little strange, does it not? Because if we in our culture, especially Western culture, even sometimes a Protestant culture, if we want people to know things, what do we do? We read them Bible stories, we preach it from the pulpit, and you know, if they're under 12, we might show them the Prince of Egypt. Yes, or for those of my generation, they might see Yul Brynner and Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. And somehow in an intellectual way, we try to put the truth into people. This isn't very intellectual. God wants people year after year to, come, to sit in their booths, to rejoice, and it's by doing this ritual or doing this tradition, yes, that you, we're going to absorb the truth or at least one way to absorb the truth. Well, of course we're going to absorb the truth by listening to the scripture, but that's not the only way. And so we might think, or we might be suspicious of ritual. After all, we think about dead ritual, and we think about ritual that's somehow used uh, in a magical way. But I have to remind, I should remind us, uh, remind all of us, that ritual is something that God invents. All you have to do is read the book of Leviticus, and it's full of do, do this and do that, but don't do this and don't do that. And there are all these steps. Now these rituals are teaching, you know, not only giving, teaching us about God, but of course they're teaching us, they're enabling us uh, to absorb godly values, and it's a way of handing them down from generation to generation. Now, if, naturally, yes, if the rituals are dead and there's no content, yes, and there's no live faith, yes, when we do the ritual, then of course it can be very deadly uh, and very dangerous. But it's equally dangerous to have no ritual it's uh, as much as it is uh, to have uh, a dead ritual. So God is asking or telling people, I want you to know who I am and what I've done for you. Come and sit in these booths. I think the Christian equivalent of this is communion. It's the Eucharist. When we come every week, yes, we come every week not only to encounter the presence of the Lord at this table, but it is a way of reinforcing through, reputa- uh, through repetition and to some extent ritual, yes, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. 
And of course, it uh, serves as that important reminder. And then there's something else that's involved in all this. And uh, well, there's something, a part of the, the holiness. Excuse me. And that holiness is in the giving of gifts. So you're to come to Jerusalem, but not come empty-handed. Not come just to receive from the Lord, but we are to go, uh, if we were pilgrims uh, living in ancient times, we would go up to Jerusalem to appear before the Lord, but not uh, empty-handed and say to the Lord, hey, give me, give me. And so we bring gifts. It could be a sacrifice, could be some other type of gift. Um, in Deuteronomy, it says that we are to bring gifts according to uh, the way in which the Lord, according to the way in which the Lord has blessed us. I think it's Deuteronomy 16. Um, and it talks about this, um, the Feast of Tabernacles. It says that we should appear before the Lord. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Each of you must bring a gift in proportion to the way the Lord your God has blessed you. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I really, it raises the question, why does God need a gift from us? Doesn't he have everything, including the cattle on a thousand hill, hills, and he wants another goat sacrifice from us? What is all this about? And here I think many of us um, don't fully understand what it means or what it meant in the ancient world for a king or a sovereign, yes, to give a gift. So kings and sovereigns gave gifts, and here, whether we're talking about uh, the ancient Near East or the Greco-Roman world, they gave gifts, and they didn't give them anonymously. They gave gifts to people who were undeserving, that's true, but they expected some response. They gave gifts in order to establish a relationship. And we return gifts in order to strengthen that relationship. And it's in the process of giving and taking, yes, that the relationship deepens. First of all, it's, I think maybe many of our listeners know the connection between sacrifice, which in Hebrew a sacrifice is a korban, and the word karov. Karov in Hebrew means close. The way that in which we come close to the Lord is actually through giving. Yes. God gives to us, and we return something of what he's given back to him. Does he need it? No, but God wants a response from us. God wants, again, he wants that relationship. A little bit our understanding of grace is maybe something akin to uh, somebody putting $5 million into our bank account. And we check our, the, the bank account and we say, oh, how wonderful, someone's given me a gift. I really don't deserve it, I know that. But our modern understanding of what a gift is, is that it's always given 
without strings attached. Yes, that's a very modern Western understanding. It may be 200 years old. It comes to us thanks to Kant, who was influenced by Luther's understanding of grace, but it's not necessarily biblical. God is giving with strings attached. Now, I have to be very cautious here. It is not that we are somehow earning this. We can't earn anything. Yes, the gifts that God gives us, the gifts that God gives us, whether we're talking about ancient Israel bringing in the harvest, uh, whether we're talking about Israel's election uh, and the presence of God in the midst of the people of Israel and the way that God blessed Israel with the land. No, Israel doesn't deserve these things. The gifts that were given to us, yes, in Jesus the Messiah, we don't deserve these things. And we, when we return something to God, something of what he's given to us, we're not trying to earn the gift. We're not trying to earn grace. By the way, the word, the, the way to translate grace is not only favor, but a very nice way a little bit non-theological, a little bit uh, maybe a way that helps us to think differently about grace is to translate it as gift. Grace, charis in Greek, is a gift. So God gives the people of Israel gifts. And the people of Israel return something. They're returning, again, something that he's given to uh, to them. It's the, back to the analogy, it's like getting five, finding five million dollars in our bank account and never sending a thank you note to the, to the person who gave the gift. Never inviting the giver over to dinner. Never acknowledging the giver's birthday. Because after all, we, we say to ourselves as moderns, oh, he, he's, he, he can't surely, he or she who gave the gift, can't expect, you know, exactly something in return. Yes, they, are. they gave it without strings attached. And God doesn't do that. Yes, God, again, God gives and expects us to give back. Yes, in a sacrificial way. God gives, us, gives to us generously and he expects us to give back not because he needs a goat, not because he needs our tithe, but it's in the exchange of gifts, yes, that uh, we develop uh, a relationship, a deeper relationship and even a deeper dependency uh, and trust in him. Now, it's easy, in one way, it's kind of easy to maybe to give money or to give our possessions. But what's a little harder is to give God gratitude. Because in all of these feasts, it tells us that we have to rejoice. Now, as I mentioned the other day, the staff, our Friday night staff dinner, for the most part, God doesn't command our emotions. I don't think he's too worried about how we feel. Okay, he commands action. He tells us to do this and to do that. 
And hopefully we, you know, the emotions follow. But when it comes to the festivals, and especially the festival that we know as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, God over and over again says, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Yes. Because God is asking us to be grateful and to be thankful (coughs) for what he's given us. And the best way, there's some theologian, a little bit controversial, probably misunderstood, but still controversial, but uh, Karl Barth, the famous Swiss theologian, did say, yes, the most, um, the best way, yes, that we can express gratitude to God is by being joyful, by being joyful because of what he's done for us. So it's not, of course, it not only challenged Israel, the people of Israel, it also challenges us. And uh, we can think of a lot of excuses why we are not joyful. And I think excuse number one might be, yeah, I'm happy for what I have, but am I gonna have enough you know, next week or the week after. I don't know. Let's not get too excited here. Yeah, so there's an anxiety. But, you know, in all of this, when God is telling us to rejoice, he's saying, don't worry about the future. Just for this moment, yes, I want, yes, I want your gratitude. And that's, again, done uh, in, uh, a holy, in holy festivities. Or maybe a close second would be, I'm really a good guy, you know. I I drive nicely, I don't kick my dog, I love my wife, I deserve more. I mean, why do, you know, why don't I have, why isn't my situation better? How can I rejoice when I'm really not getting what's owed to me? Yes? Is that human or not? I know we're not a lot out there, but someone say, like Nina, say amen. I don't know. <laughs> you know, God's, I, the, the, the theme that's come across in the last couple sermons is God's not fair. God's not fair when he judges. God's not fair when he's, when he's generous. Somehow we feel like we're, we're always being left out. And I remember once uh, Karen Pryor, wife of Dwight Pryor, who was our beloved teacher and mentor, and she said, what? she said to us once, you know, people are afraid of joy. Yes, joy can be very frightening. Joy might, I don't know, people somehow might feel like, the, you know, they might lose control of themselves or make a fool of themselves or look stupid you know, if we're actually, if we're too joyful. Uh, in certain circles, um, maybe in the United States or Canada, we would be, we would, might call such people naive, or they're some kind of a Pollyanna. You know, they're always looking at the bright side of life, or whatever. So we can be afraid of joy. Now, joy is, um, 
or let, let's say the following, not having joy is very dangerous. And there is a very frightening verse that, um, that we find in Deuteronomy. And the verse, it's, it's God's, you might say, judgment on Israel. But I think the judgment applies to most countries in the Western world who have enjoyed incredible peace and prosperity, relative peace and prosperity, after the Second World War. And when God is talking about the curses that will come upon Israel uh, for their disobedience, he says, um, uh, these curses will be a sign and a wonder to you and your descendants forever because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Therefore, hunger and thirst and nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve your enemies and he will put an iron yoke around your neck. And I believe that, in a way, speaks to many of the countries in which we live in. We were prosperous. We were not grateful. We wanted more, 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 more. And instead of giving to the Lord, very often we squandered on ourselves in a very foolish way. And now I think people are waking up and it's a psychological shock. We're waking up to what we had. And there's no going back. I'm not sure there's uh, some easy political program that's going to put us, uh, take us back to the place where we, uh, the prosperity, let's talk about, that we once knew. Yes, I understand lots of, some, many people were poor in Western countries, not everyone shared equally uh, in our prosperity, but still, nonetheless. And so, gratitude and joy Yes, these are decisions that we can make. We can make a decision to be grateful. We can make a decision to be joyful. The emotions are important, and perhaps they'll follow. Finally, I just would like to, to also, this, there's another, maybe a twist, not twist to this, there's another uh, PS that we have to add. And that PS is that gratitude Gratitude is not abstract. It's not just walking around and being thankful. It's not walking around 20 centimeters off the ground uh, and being, oh, I'm just so grateful to the Lord. It can include that. And that's a very good posture to take. But gratitude expresses itself in very practical and tangible ways. And if we're going to be grateful to the giver, we also, and this is, again, from the ancient, uh, whether it's the ancient Near East or the Greco-Roman world, when someone generously gives us a gift, when someone generously gives us something, especially something we don't deserve, it was expected it was considered part of the package 
that we were going to honor the giver. We were going to be loyal to the giver. We were going to trust in the giver. We were going to, you know, give the giver a good reputation, you might say. And again, something sim- uh, mentioned something similar this morning. I mean, if, we, if you receive $5 million from the Microsoft Corporation and from Bill Gates, and I'm sorry to use this as an analogy, I'm sorry if you believe he's in a conspiracy, I don't. But if we receive $5 million from Bill Gates and we went out and trashed publicly, you know, Microsoft products and talked about uh, what a bad person Bill Gates was and how we weren't going to use Microsoft or Android, we were going to, you know, stick with the overpriced, you know, Apple uh, computers and the overpriced iPhone. Yes, wait till iPhone 15 comes out. I'm sure it'll be $2,000 or whatever. Yes. That, yeah, that just was not, that's not supposed to happen. And so, if loyalty and honor is part of the package, yes, and if we have received as believers, as disciples in Jesus, the most incredible gift, free gift of grace and mercy. It should have practical implications. And I think this is best laid out for us in the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews does a wonderful job of reminding us Yes, of the gifts that God has given us. Yes, that we now, God has spoken to us through his son. And the son is a priest on our behalf. And the son goes into the holy place so that we can be forgiven. And the son has uh, suffered for us and understands uh, the life that we're living. And so he empathizes with us. And as when we request things from him, he understands our fears, our anxieties, our temptations, and he comes to our aid. And he has freed us not only from sin, but from the fear of death and Satan himself. And he's promised us a, 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 a heavenly city, a heavenly Jerusalem, a Jerusalem that will never pass away and a glorious eternity and a kingdom that will not be destroyed. All of these are phenomenal gifts. And uh, speaking of this, we read in in Hebrews, the, um, the following, and maybe you'll find this language very similar to what we read in Leviticus. It says as follows, in verse 12, 20, 28, It says, uh, therefore, yes, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Yes, the world and the world system uh, is falling apart, especially in the day in which we live, perhaps more dramatically than in the recent past. Let us be thankful. Let us be thankful even in the midst of difficulty 
and so worship God acceptantly, acceptedly, uh, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So God being a consuming fire reminds us of holiness. Holiness is beneficial, it's good, and it's also dangerous. And here God says, reverence and awe, and be thankful. Now, this reminds me of the festival. And then we go to chapter 13. And chapter 13, as I understand it, is a very concrete example of what it means to be grateful. And I'm only going to read a few verses. But these verses are, t- are instructing us to live in a certain way. Yes, that will that we will uh, express loyalty to the giver, trust in the one who gave to us, and our lifestyle will bring him honor. Yes. Again, we are not earning anything. God has given given these gifts to us, but we have to stop maybe thinking and in, right at the moment in terms of the Reformation. This is not about works. It's just about our response. How are we going to respond to the giver? Yes. Um, before in Leviticus, it was through worship and gift giving and gratitude. Let's see what it says here. It says, keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to, be, to entertain str- strangers. Be hospitable, yes, be loving, because again, this brings honor, yes, to the one who's given us these gifts, the gift of eternal life. Uh, Remember those who are suffering and those who are in prison, especially I, I understand that this is those who may be in prison because of their faith. Yes, other, other members of the family, yes, if, um, we want to, to be loyal to the, to the giver. We need to be loyal to, um, uh, you might say, to his family as well. Um, and then it talks about marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the immoral. And this is because in God's uh, eyes, marriage is more than just uh, something, uh, an institution given for human benefit. It is. It certainly is given for our blessing. But there is no, you might say, no other relationship or no other institution that so uh, clearly defines, yes, God's uh, love for his people, uh, God's uh, giving uh, to his people, and uh, Marriage, in this sense, needs to be, there needs to be loyalty uh, within this marriage relationship. Keep yourself free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God will never leave you. Or he said, God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The Lord is my, hep- my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Uh, and so on and so forth. And finally, I just, uh, we could look at every verse and I think apply every verse uh, to the, the grid or the filter 
of uh, how are we going to give honor to the giver, to continually trust the giver, uh, to, and to do more. But uh, the verse that we'd like to end with is um, as follows. It says, through Jesus, therefore let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, a fruit of lips, okay, that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For such, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Yes, God is pleased. And this is uh, in Hebrews chapter 13, which is telling us in a concrete way, yes, practical way, yes, what it means to be grateful. How are we going to be thankful? How will we show uh, respect and honor Yes, to the one who's given us all these wonderful, wonderful gifts in Jesus the Messiah. Such a great, great salvation. And so can we be grateful is the challenge. What are those things that somehow stop us? What are those things that uh, take, that we, those excuses that we make that um, somehow take advantage uh, of God's grace? What are those things in our heart, those, those places of, uh, you might say, dissatisfaction and discontent that keep us from truly being grateful? These are things that we need to ask the Holy Spirit to come to search our hearts, yes, and to bring us uh, to that place of gratitude so that in a very holy way that all of us can rejoice and all of us can give, yes, all of us can praise and all of us can live in a way that uh, brings honor to the gift giver. And so, Father in heaven, we ask that your Holy Spirit will come at this moment. Search our hearts. What are those things that get in the way? Lord, our fear, our anxiety, our rebelliousness, our lack of faith, our inability to trust you. We pray that you would, Lord, bring us healing and that uh, you would enable us, Lord, with the gift of faith that you give us, Lord, to live in a way that pleases you and, Lord, that brings honor to you, the gift giver, the one who has given us grace, the one who has purchased our salvation, and filled us with the Holy Spirit. And we ask this for his sake and for the honor and glory of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, 
or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.